Sorry about my hand. I was uh, looking forward to playing, but uh, I definitely can't. I fell off a ladder, I'm ashamed to admit. And I wasn't exactly sure what I should talk about tonight, so I'm really taking three different approaches here. The first is I want to talk a little bit about how I came to write this book. It wasn't my idea, and the title is not my title. Um, but I, I've, I've grown to like the title. Um, but I wanted to talk also about the title and what exactly Americana music is, what that term means. I think, uh, especially in terms of music, people have uh, erroneous ideas about what it is. And then finally, I wanted to talk about a few musical acts uh, related to Helena, since we're in Helena, although I do cover people from all over the state. So let me start by talking a little bit about um, this book. And it really started with an article that I wrote that, that uh, appeared in the Journal of Old Time Fiddling called The History of Fiddling in Montana. And the way that I, I ended up writing this book was that I previously published Literary Butte, uh, a, a literary survey of all the uh, many novels written about Butte. And the editor of that book uh, is a big music fan. He lives in South Carolina, big Americana music fan. And he said, hey, you're from Montana. You're a musician and a writer. Why don't you write a book about what I like? Um, so he, he talked me into writing about uh, Montana Americana music, but it really came out of this journal. Uh, five, six years ago, I wrote a long essay about the history of fiddling in Montana, which, you know, at first blush, you might think there's not really much to tell, except that uh, some of the first Europeans to come to Montana happened to be fiddlers. Two of the people on the uh, Lewis and Clark expedition were fiddlers, Pierre Cruzat and uh, Gibson. And the Metis scholar Nicholas Vroman here in Helena actually makes the argument that part of the reason that the Corps of Discovery was so successful was that they had these fiddlers with them. And whenever they encountered Indians, they would get out the fiddles, and then the Indians would get out the drums, and then you know they're having a party instead of killing each other. He called it uh, fiddle dance diplomacy. And I think there's something to it, especially because... Uh, people also forget that, that more than half of the people in the Corps of Discovery were not white Europeans. They were Métis. They were mixed blood. Um, Pierre Cruzat, in fact, was three-quarters Indian um, and a fiddler. And I think it's remarkable that many of the tunes that he played are tunes that we still play. I'm a fiddler, so um, you know these tunes that were played 200 years ago, uh, we still play at contra and square dances. So... The nexus of the book, Montana Americana Music, really grew out of a long article that I wrote about the history of, of fiddling in this um, journal. And I, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Um, and the, the way that I really got into writing these books about Montana in the first place was I, I pitched the Butte story. I'd written this long essay about novels uh, in Butte to the editor of this book. And I said, hey, I've written this long essay about uh, Butte writers. Are you interested? And he said, no, thank you. Uh, but then a month later, he, he, he called me back and he said, but I do have an idea for you. It's the, two, or it's the 150th anniversary of 
of Montana's territorial status. Do you think you could write a book about that? You know, this was 2014. Uh, we became a territory in 1864. And I said, sure. And he said, well, you've got about five months to do it. So I said, well, I'll focus on nothing but that. <clears throat> and wrote this book. Um, so it sort of is all connected, and that's how I ended up uh, finally at this book. Um, do you all know who this guy is? This is Johnny Cash. Um, it's a pretty famous, iconic photo of Johnny Cash. What most people don't, don't know is that this, the, the story behind this photo, I think the photo dates from 1968, and um, he's making this very uh, appropriate gesture to a, to a table of record industry executives in Nashville because they wouldn't play him on the radio. He was, you know, he was very big in the late 50s and the early 60s, but by the late 60s, he was uh, no longer on the radio in Nashville. And I found this meme on the internet. Y'all know who Luke Bryan is? A few of you? Oh, well, if you don't know who he is, that's great. Um, but I think he would represent modern, um, modern country music, the kind that you would hear on the radio. And I, I guess I have somewhat of a personal stake in this because as a musician, people ask me, so what kind of music do you play? And I would like to say I play country music, but if I say that, then people are going to think I play the kind of music that you hear on country radio, which is not country at all. Um, it's sort of recycled bad 80s rock with pedal steel guitar, and now most of it sounds like rap. So you can't really say it's country, and then you try to clarify... Well, I play, you know, 40s and 50s country, uh, you know, like Hank Williams, stuff like that. In fact, two weeks ago tonight, I was here with Russell Rowland. Anybody here for that talk? So at the end of it, we played a few uh, Hank Williams songs and Movin' Brothers tunes, which would be, I would say, is real country. Um, so part of the reason that I start with this meme is that Americana music, that term really developed because the new country that people were making starting in the 80s and the 90s, they did not really have a term for it. Many musicians found themselves in the same boat. And if you know, they said, well, we play country music, people expected to hear the, you know, the stuff that you would hear on country, country radio, which is not really country music. Uh, many people would say it's not really music. Um, and not to disparage it too much, but there's a great uh, website that you can go to to illustrate this point. Somebody took six number one country songs from, you know, very recently, let's say between 2010 and 2014, six different number one songs and played them simultaneously with a graph showing, you know, the, the, the bridge, the location of the bridge and the choruses and, and even the, uh, the melodic ups and downs, and they're identical. They're just, you know, slightly different lyrics, slightly different artists, but very generic so I think this Johnny Cash photo really sort of encapsulates the difference between modern country and Americana, which I really want to talk a little bit more about. Maybe I'll read uh, a short section from the introduction of the book because that, you know, the, the first thing I had to do in the book was explain exactly what is this term Americana. So maybe I'll pause here and read a, a brief section here where I talk about what is Americana. Sometime 
In the mid-1980s, a new kind of music began to inundate the bars and nightclubs of nearly every college town in America, standing note to note with the alternative sound popular then as produced by bands like R.E.M. and The Smiths. Actually, this new music sounded old, mainly because a lot of it had steel guitar or a twanging telecaster like an old Merle Haggard or Buck Owens record. It was retro, which was cool because retro was hip, and this stuff hit the ear like someone opening the door of a honky-tonk way out on a dirt road about 1960. To seasoned listeners uh, in most parts of Montana and the rural rest of the country, however, the music sounded more like a slightly glossier version of what the old folks had been listening to for what seemed like forever. Anyone hip enough to know about Graham Parsons or the Birds knew that country rock had been around at least since the 1960s, even if it was just now becoming popular enough to earn its own category on the Billboard charts. Critics and fans struggled to find a name for this new take on an old theme, especially those who prefer their musical tastes strictly categorized. And almost every nerd with a library of vinyl in his or her basement seems to be enamored of categories and subcategories. I should also um, clarify that part of what drove the writing of this book is that I have a lot of friends who are music collectors, and Americana really is a collector's kind of music, um, which I'll explain later on in this introduction. Um, by default, most of this music became known as alternative country, which was vague, but at least it made clear that this stuff existed outside of and apart from most of the nauseating crap that Nashville had been fogging the airwaves with since the late 1970s. Edgier critics opted for the double entendre of alt-cunt, a mashup of alternative and country that also contained an oblique reference to the pervasive influence of rock and roll, at least its taste for irreverence and sexual suggestion. Another possibility was y'alternative, a slip of the tongue that rolled out with the nod to the South where a lot of the original music had been made. And that was true whether you thought of country music as Hank Williams, Alabama, Ted Daffin, Texas, or you were savvy enough to know about Bill Monroe, Kentucky, or Jimmy Rogers in Mississippi. The most enduring fanzine for the music went by the name of No Depression. And for a while, some critics just referred to the whole genre using the same name. The title referred to an old Carter family song, No Depression in Heaven, so it had that. But No Depression also happened to be the name of an album by the Missouri band Uncle Tupelo, one of the earlier, earliest popularizers of this new style. And so the phrase tended to be too narrowly associated with just that band. There were other names, too, but in the end, the one that stuck was pure and simple, Americana. Americana worked well because it was itself an old word, one that had a long pedigree, even if people thought it had never been expressly applied to music. Rob Bleatstein usually gets credit for adapting the old word, Americana, to a new usage in 1995. But Capitol Records had uh, a music series on 78 RPM in the late 1940s with the label Capital Americana. And then uh, in one of those weird vagaries of writing a book, I, I happened to be reading a science fiction story by Robert Heinlein written in 1958. And the term appears there, used appropriately. And it refers to the contents of a jukebox on which happens to be playing the 1947 Lonzo and Oscar novelty song, I'm My Own Grandpa. Um, so I have a long footnote here explaining this because I, I find it really relevant. Uh, I'll, I'll just read you the footnote. The uh, story is a complex tale of time travel 
remember this story is written in 1958. Uh, a complex tale of time travel in which the visitors go to the year 1986, so right about the time that Americana started to take off. And the passage reads as follows. The jukebox blared out, I'm my own grandpa. The serviceman had orders to load it with Americana and classics because I couldn't stomach the music of 1970. Uh, but I hadn't known what tape was in it. I called out, shut that off, shut that off, give the customer his money back. Um, Lonzo and Oscar, I don't know if you know this song, uh, I'm My Own Grandpa. It's a pretty funny song, novelty song, very country, uh, very much in the spirit of what I'll talk about later in, in reference to Americana. Uh, so anyway, the root of Americana was America, but of course the N-A suffix hinted a little bit at its sort of built-in collectability. People who collect cigar tins, for example, advertise on eBay for tabakiana. So anything with the N-A on the end of it sort of means that it's, it's uh, a genre that people collect. Americana certainly seemed to capture what rock critic Grial Marcus had a few decades earlier spoken of as the old weird America, as he sought to describe an aesthetic that culminated in the lyrics of Bob Dylan. Um, Bob Dylan just won the Nobel Prize for Literature. That America included the peculiar religious residue of the first and second great awakenings and the eerie Appalachian gospel music that helped form the roots of blues and country music. Accordingly, Jonathan Edwards' sermons became as relevant as, to Americana as Civil War narratives and chain gang singing, echoes of all of which resonate through the music of old weird America. Whatever Americana music may be, it is apt to be one important remove from America itself, uh, which may be reassuring to anyone tending toward contempt for red, white, and blue jingoism, knee-jerk nationalism, or just plain old authority operating at the categorical level. And when I say these things, I'm thinking of Luke Bryan and even better, Toby Keith, uh, especially since mainstream country music so often embraces those values. Americana offers some kind of commentary on all of those inelegant features of the American landscape that, like them or not, make the country what it is. Americana may be a mirror, but it also shines a lamp. And this helps explain why a lot of the music, even if it sounded country, it wasn't quite, at least not completely. A good deal of it came out of the speaker with the same jangle and snap as country fried rock and roll. After all, the suburban kids were listening to it and playing it, and while the suburbs may not be the city, they're still a long way from the country. The way it contained echoes of so many other genres explains a considerable part of its appeal. Um, pinning down true allegiances always proves exasperating, but parsing these genres drives most discussions of music in the first place. Doing so also serves the useful purpose of supplying new alleys and back roads for collectors to get lost in, that is, record collectors, and America loves its hoarders and collectors, many of whom are vinyl-addicted Alice's repeatedly diving down thrift shop rabbit holes. But like Columbus, who thought he was discovering a new world that was in reality quite old and already inhabited, many collectors and music aficionados alike are not uncovering new music so much as they are recovering old territory with new purpose. Um, Robert Crumb provides a good example. As a consequence of his success as a cartoonist, he's amassed an inimitable and museum-quality record collection of 78 records. I mean, I mention him because I don't know if you're familiar with Robert Crumb. He was a famous 60s cartoonist um, who made a fortune doing that, and then he collected uh, extremely rare 78 records. And a lot of people do this. Joe uh, Buzzard in uh, Virginia also. 
But what's great about these guys is they may have the only known copy of a particular song, and then they release it uh, on you know, a CD so everybody can listen to it. Uh, but this is music that was recorded in the 20s and 30s. Uh, collectors in general are like long-range reconnaissance patrols preparing the way for critical theorists. And eventually the information gleaned from their expeditions gets passed on to the rest of us shopping for music. Collectors are pragmatic and succinct, if not downright pithy, which it proves helpful to anyone searching out new music to listen to, mainly because their idiom of critique starts out something like this. If you like Graham Parsons, you'll love these guys. Or if you like Johnny Cash, you should listen to these guys. Um, collectors are all about nuance and the seduction of obscurity, and it's only when some marketing genius tries to commercialize taste that we end up searching for the perfect categorical brand. Meanwhile, the best collections, like Harry Smith's 1952 Anthology of American Folk Music, I don't know if you all are familiar with this, but it's a, it's a seminal anthology of music that a guy called Harry Smith put together in 1952. It's influenced... Uh, virtually every folk musician since. Many people think it's responsible for the big folk uh, revival in the late 50s, early 60s. But what's remarkable about this anthology is that the only guiding uh, aesthetic principle is that it happened to be things that this guy liked. There's no other organizing principle for it. Um, but it's influenced so many other people. And so all of these collectors tend to be very idiosyncratic and highly personal. As the French philosopher Jean Baudrillard wrote in an essay in 1968 called The System of Collecting. So people have been studying collectors for a long time. He says it is invariably oneself that one collects. Americana music developed as a consequence of the American urge to collect its own musical expressions. In any case... As longtime Nashville music writer Craig Havikhurst points out, Americana isn't a genre. To those in the industry, it's better understood as a radio format, like easy listening or hard rock, both of which encompass a host of genres and subgenres. As radio promoter Pete Knapp defines it on his website, here's his definition. Let me read this to you. Americana is an amalgam of American folk music formed by the confluence of shared and varied traditions that make up the musical ethos of the United States. Specifically, those sounds that are merged from folk, country, blues, rhythm and blues, rock and roll, and other external influences. Makes you wonder why he said specifically. I mean, it's about as comprehensive a denotation definition possible, and while one admires the impulse for inclusiveness, Using his definition, it's hard to imagine an American form of music that would not be Americana, so I find this very unhelpful. Um, but what Knapp missed is that Americana might very well fall under the influence of all those disparate strains that he mentions. But what emerges at the other end of that confluence is some form of musical expression that is somehow, for lack of a better word, country. And I mean this now in the sort of geographical sense whether it's hillbilly music or the blues. And the blues is a nice uh, point of contrast because you have uh, country blues, which is in the, the Delta, the Mississippi River Delta in Arkansas and Mississippi, uh, but then you have Chicago blues, which is very urban. So the, the Delta blues would be Americana, but not the Chicago blues. The 78 co collector Christopher King, another record collector, 
Uh, he gets at what a person could take as a pretty fair definition of Americana when he describes exactly what he collects. He says, quote, if there's any one continuous thread through everything I have, it's deeply, deeply rural and backwoodsy. It's almost like it turns its back on the city. One of America's finest writers and collectors, Larry McMurtry. Y'all, I'm sure, have heard of Larry McMurtry. Um, and I'm sure you know he's a writer, but did you know that he's a collector, too? Uh, he had a bookstore in Texas, uh, one of the biggest bookstores in Texas. He was a book collector and a music collector. Uh, and he, he wrote a 1968 essay on collecting, or he talks about collecting in this essay called A Look at the Lost Frontier. And he observes, quote, hillbilly music is a music of estrangement, the estrangement of country people who have moved to the city and not found the city good. Um, so not all of the music surveyed in this book would fall under that category, but a lot of it would. And then I'll stop reading here and just talk about why this connects to Montana, at least in my mind. Um, as I've discerned it here, Americana refers to a lot of different styles of music, but what they all have in common is that it's more country than urban. And Montana fits that definition to a T. Really, uh, depending on how you define city, the entire state is country. Um, you know, we do have a few urban centers, but more than half of the population lives, uh, you know, in decidedly what we would call the country. So that's sort of the working definition that I that I had. Any questions about that, or can I clarify any part of that? Um, I will add that the, the term Americana was invented in 1841. Um, the English actually came up with the word to describe anything having to do with American culture, they called Americana, because they were collecting it too. Um, and, I, and when I say that I think Americana is America one removed from itself, it's this kind of country music is different from Nashville country in that it offers a commentary on the country itself. I'll read one, one other paragraph here. Um, Ameri Americana music is a reflection of American culture as well as a reaction against it, both of which appreciate the inescapable contradictions inherent in our culture. It's like a streak of schizophrenia that has split the American psyche ever since a bunch of slave owners decided to form an independent country, ironically dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So I think that the very fact that this country is founded on such a schizophrenic uh, cultural divide influences the country music. So on the one hand, you would have uh, Nashville country, and on the other hand, you would have this Americana music that sort of comments on... Uh, the culture itself. And so the term Americana retains all these aspects of irony when applied to the style of music that now bears its name. The music, like the other artifacts, is America taken one remove from itself. Country music that isn't exactly the sound pouring out of beer joints and roadhouses back in the 1950s, but is without question a reaction to the anemic corporate country rap polluting top 40 radio nowadays. Um, I think that sort of is enough to give you a working definition of what I was going with here. Um, and then I'd like to talk about some of the highlights of the, of the book. Um, anybody recognize this band? This was a band called the uh, Snake River Outlaws. 
um, they played down at the corner of Woody and Alder Street in Missoula for uh, six nights a week for several years in the early 50s. And uh, Jimmy Widner, he's the guy in the back there with the uh, playing the fiddle bow over his, his friend's shoulder there. He just died last year, but he was a legendary fiddler in, in Montana. He was originally from Weezer, Idaho. And this band uh, was not only influential, but they sort of represent, uh, in, at least in my mind, this, this very rural sound. These guys could have gone to Nashville probably and gotten very big, but I think they preferred the, the wildlife in a rural place like Montana. They were from a little town in Idaho called Weezer, Idaho. And... Uh, were happy to play. They played mostly in Missoula in Butte. Uh, and Orville Fochtman, the guy with the guitar there, he's uh, still alive in Weezer. He's 93. I talked to him on the phone twice. And I did interview Jimmy Widner also for this book. Um, this is, uh, I think that's a 1952 LaSalle. Uh, I forget the word for the thing that carries dead people around. Hearse, thank you. You'd never know I'm an English professor. Um, but they bought this to tour around the West and, and play their music. Um, this is a picture of Jimmy Widner in the middle there uh, with his uncle, who was also a fiddler. I, I don't know what his name was. Uh, and his brother playing the banjo there. That's Jimmy in the middle on the guitar. And that's probably a picture from the late 1930s. Um, what I like about the picture is that it, it, you know, it's not only Depression-era photo, but it could easily have been taken on a street corner in Mississippi or Texas or any of the places that we think of, uh, you know, the roots of country music. And if I could connect everything that I just said to the stuff on fiddling, I would say that one of the unique strains in American music is the fact that uh, many people from Scotland, Ireland, England, when they came over in the late 1600s, early 1700s, uh, they quickly settled the Appalachian region of the country. You know, Daniel Boone opened the Cumberland Gap, I think, 1705, pretty early. And, uh, you know, these people settled in that region, and then they were relatively cut off from the rest of the country for 100 years. And they preserved this musical tradition that they brought over from, from Europe. Uh, and it mixed very gradually with uh, slave music to generate what we now think of as country music, the blues, and then ultimately jazz in the, in the 1920s. Um, but because that music was connected to a much older fiddle tradition, it, it didn't change as much as a lot of other things did. So these people living in Appalachia, you know, retained a culture that was, it's like a time machine. They set it down in the middle of these mountains, and then it didn't really change for 100 or so years. Um, and part of the reason that I like to play the music that I play, you know, old-time fiddle, is that I, I like the idea that the tunes that I play are the same tunes that these guys played, certainly, but also probably the fiddlers on the Lewis and Clark expedition. And even at that time, they were probably 100 years old then, if not older. Um, this woman, Country Girl Kay, um, she actually is connected here to Helena. This was one of the more interesting stories that I uncovered in the writing of the book. She was originally from Missouri, 
she and her sister were both pretty talented musicians and singers. And she hooked up with a guy in Livingston, Montana called Jack Whitaker. And he right away recognized that she was a pretty talented performer and singer, but also a great songwriter. And so he became not only her husband, but her manager and, and so believed in her that he said, you know, you really should drop my last name. Or she was, you know, her name was, after she got married, Kay Whitaker. But he said, forget, forget that. Just call yourself Country Girl Kay. I'll be your manager and we'll focus entirely on you. And we'll go to Helena and we'll record at Valtron Studios. Um, and I have to say a word about Valtron uh, Studios because between, I think, the late 1940s and the 1960s, it was the only uh, recording industry approved studio between Seattle and Minneapolis. So pretty much anybody in the region would come here to record. So they went over there and uh, came over here and recorded uh, 12 or 14 songs. We've tracked down... Um, I think we have a list of 12 now, and there are four pictured here, but there's four others, um, two of which we haven't located, but we have rumors of them. Um, and these songs are amazing. I mean, they really are uh, classic country songs, and she sings in this very plaintive voice. Um, I wish I had a, a recording uh, boombox that I could play some of this stuff, but I will tell you, I did a two-hour radio show for KUFM in Missoula a couple of weeks ago, and that's archived on uh, Facebook. If you're interested, contact me, and I'll hook you up with uh, recordings of this. Um, she's an amazing singer, just a beautiful voice, and a, you know she played all the instruments, guitar, bass, uh, dulcimer, banjo. Uh, it really, unlike anything you can imagine, the real tragedy here is that right after they recorded all these sides, uh, her husband was hitchhiking from Wyoming back to Bozeman back in the days when it was relatively safe, and he got picked up by a couple from Maine who murdered him. Um, and it was a pretty, pretty big murder case. It was tried in Wyoming, and the guy was sentenced to death. Weird how that happened. Right when I said death, the lights went on. Um, anyway, so he, he was sentenced to death, and he was on death row, and he appealed his case. He appealed it all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States, and uh, the Supreme Court overturned the conviction and said that uh, his girlfriend's confession had been coerced or she hadn't been read her Miranda rights. And the, interestingly, the only judge who demurred and wanted the conviction to stand was Harry Blackman. Uh, so anyway, this killer got set free. And she never recorded again, as far as we know. She did stay in Montana. She lived in Kalispell for years. She only died a few years ago. Uh, and she did occasionally play out, but mostly for church. Um, and she gave music lessons. But, you know, it's one of those tragic stories where I think she might have really gone places. And when you hear her sing, you'll, you'll know what I'm talking about. She's a really fascinating lady. And this is Les Leadley in uh, Valtron Recording Studios here in Helena. Um, naturally, one of the sources that you would go to, to to recover some of this lost music would be these old recording studios. And I did talk to um, Les's son, Mike Leadley, who still runs uh, Valtron Studios. But alas, all the archives have long since vanished. Nobody uses tape anymore to record. It's all digital. So 
All that stuff is lost to the ages. Um, and I included this picture because it's such a Montana story. I put this in the book. This is the Valtron Recording Studio uh, um, van. And the, what makes this such a great Montana story is that he came to work in the morning and the back of that retaining wall was where he, he shoveled all the snow during the week. So there was like a three or four foot snow drift. And to make the neighborhood kids laugh who were watching him back in there, he ran the, the uh, Volkswagen up on top of the snow drift. So it was parked on top of you know, a couple feet of snow and then he went into work. And a Chinook came in while he was at work and melted all the snow and dropped the van off the side of the... Uh, only people from Montana would appreciate that. Um, you know, I'm not sure where it was originally. I know he lived on Beatty Street, but I don't think the studio was there. That's a really good question. I'm not exactly sure where it was. Um, this is a guy also from Helena who had strong Helena connections named Tiny Stokes. Um, here's another guy that we found some 78 records of him, a few 45s, and started doing some research on him. And it turns out that he really made his name and his fortune as a singer, songwriter, player for the cowboy movies in the 30s. Um, he was uh, connected with Rex Allen and a couple other cowboys. But then he retired you know, at an early age to Helena where he continued his music career. Um, part of what's great about writing a book like this is this picture I think is from 1954. And it's in the book. And the guy playing the accordion um, came up to me in Missoula and he said, that's me in that picture. A good friend of mine, a guy, I've, uh, Chuck Bloom, he owns a recording studio over in, in Missoula, um, and told me a little bit more about this picture. Unfortunately, we couldn't identify any of the other players. Um, but Tiny Stokes was a, a, not only a phenomenal musician, but he wrote some pretty great songs connected to Montana, the Great Falls Waltz, uh, he wrote a song, one of my favorite songs that we discussed in the book, or I discussed in the book that we found in the, in the course of studying this was, uh, it's called the Blackfoot Boogie. Anyone know this song? What's great about the song is it's basically a bar hopping tour of the entire state. So it goes, you know, through Browning, uh, all the towns, Glendive, and he names all these nightclubs that people would, would party at. Uh, in Butte, so it's really a very historical document, the song itself, and it's a great song. Uh, he lived in Helena and taught music lessons for years, also was a DJ for KBLL radio, uh, ran a hot dog stand downtown, uh, was just a real Helena character. Somebody, I think in the independent record, called him the Burl Lives of Helena. But probably, whoops, one of the uh, most famous connections to him was that he discovered Charlie Pride, who also lived in Helena, down on Piosta Street. And when uh, Red Foley came to Montana and played here in Helena, Tiny Stokes said, there's a, there's a guy here you absolutely have to hear this guy sing. Um, let me bring him over to you. And so he, he sort of auditioned Charlie Pride for Red Foley. And Red Foley told Charlie Pride, if you're ever in Nashville, look me up and I'll get you a record contract. Now, Charlie Pride lived in Helena because he worked at the East Helena Smelter, and he played baseball for the East Helena Smelterites. Uh, and he was a pretty good ball player. 
So good, in fact, that he went down to spring training in Florida to try out for the Mets and uh, almost made the cut, but didn't. And it was actually on his trip back to Montana from Florida that he thought, oh, yeah, I better stop in Nashville and take that guy up on that offer, and then the rest is history. But he always credited Tiny Stokes for, his, for setting him up. Um, I want to say a little bit about this picture. Um, what's great to me about this band, this is, uh, oh, I have to look up the, I get so many of these confused. The, uh, I want to give the correct name of the, uh, Jimmy Owens. The Jimmy Owens Country Band. Um, the drummer, the kid holding the drumsticks there, is a 15-year-old woman named Monty Cowles. And I, I interviewed her. She lives in Portland now. But I interviewed her on the phone to ask about these years of playing music. Um, she was great. And at the end of the conversation, I asked her, I said, well, do you stay in touch with uh, Charlie Pride? And she said, no, you know, I don't. But I've been meaning to call him up and congratulate him on his success. <laughs> I love that. Uh, but w what a remarkable band. You know, not only Charlie Pride, but uh, a woman drummer in the band. A very multicultural band for, this is, I think, about 1965, this picture. Uh, many great stories about, uh, about this particular country band. People told me here in Helena, uh, Rick Newby told me that uh, when he was a kid, he went to the Baptist church up on, uh, uh, where is it? I think it was across the street from the cathedral. Um, and he said Charlie Pride would sing gospel music at the church on Sunday there. Um, I do talk about the Mission Mountain Wood Band, uh, probably the most famous band to come out of Montana. These guys are still playing, still playing the same music. Um, Unfortunately, the sort of the main star of the band, Terry Robinson, the guy in the back with the engineer hat, died in a plane wreck in, I think, 1978. After this band had split up, but um, still a pretty uh, important era of Montana music, mainly because they were so connected to the Aberday Kegers, which still hold the record for the world's largest outdoor party, 1,000 kegs of beer consumed in Missoula, Montana. Here's an example of uh, the Aberday beer line, 1975. So another great thing uh, that happened in writing this book was that uh, we uncovered a whole trove of photographs that had never seen the light of day uh, connected to the Aberday parties at the Mansfield Library in, in Missoula. And those are all now available to the public. Um, this is a picture of a pretty good friend of mine, Dave Thomas, there in the middle uh, at Luke's Bar in Missoula. But the guy with the glasses is Jay Rummel. Anyone know Jay Rummel? He's pretty famous as a graphic and ceramic artist. Uh, his murals hang uh, in many places throughout Montana, and his, his big ceramic uh, plates are amazing. But uh, he was also pretty famous for being a musician and wrote uh, several songs that I think are, are worthy of the Montana canon, including the Butte Cowboy. This is one of the rare photos of Jay Rummel. Um, it so happens that I played in this band, so I couldn't really discuss him in the book, but I, I at least got their, uh, their graphic of their CD cover in the book. 
Jay Rummel did this, this design. So that's one of his pieces of art. This is one of his more famous ones. Uh, the Sunshine Bar, if you see in the middle there, can you see the Sunshine Bar? That band is Jimmy Widner and the Snake River Outlaws, the first band that I, that I showed you. What's great about Rummel is not just, I mean, I love this style, and I love the fact that he was a musician, but what I really think is important about his work is that he, he made history of all these bands and showed how they were connected to folk music in general and specifically Montana music. Um, so really these are, are kind of tapestries, I guess would be the word, except they're, they're drawn, not sewn. Uh, this is a, a guy called Joey Running Crane from Browning, Montana. I do have a chapter in the book on just Indian music, Native Americana. I talked to Jack Gladstone, um, a guy from Great Falls called Kerry Morin. But this young man was one of the most exciting discoveries that I made. He's 26 years old, and he already has a long pedigree as a musician in Montana. When he was 16, he started a punk band up in Browning called God Damn It Boy Howdy. Um, and they really are an amazing punk band. Maybe not a lot of you are into punk music, but if you are, it's a pretty seminal band. Um, they made some great recordings. And then a few years ago, he just decided he wanted to play uh, this kind of Americana country music and writes these really soulful ballads. Amazing songwriter, really amazing storyteller. He played here in Helena a few weeks ago to an audience about this size, you know, no PA or anything, just him and a guitar. And I swear it must have been like seeing Bob Dylan in 1960. He had the crowd one minute crying their eyes out and then laughing uproariously. I mean, he's really funny, super smart and articulate and can talk about exactly the nuances that I'm trying to describe here. So he was a pretty exciting discovery. Another young guy about the same age is uh, Cameron Boster. And in the interest of full disclosure, I will say that I've known this guy his entire life because I grew up with his father. Um, but I had no idea he was a musician really until the last few years. And the reason I included him in the book is that he represents a whole new way of making music that I is pretty unfamiliar to me and I imagine it's unfamiliar to most people in this room that if you think of the standard musical model, it's that you perform a lot, you go out and play in public a lot and get an audience, and then you go into the studio and record a record, which you then sell, right? The internet has changed things in so many ways. Uh, chief among them is that it's cut out entirely the whole uh, record industry executive corporate machine. So if you think back to that first image of Johnny Cash, uh, given that famous gesture to the record industry executives, nowadays nobody has to deal with them if they don't want to because you can record on the internet, you can upload your music on the internet, you can distribute it yourself or put it on Amazon where anybody can get it. In short, the entire thing is now what these guys call DIY, do it yourself. Uh, both Joey Running Crane and Cameron Boster are great uh, representatives of this approach. The reason I mention this is that this guy has written probably 500 songs, most of them pretty good. They're all available on the internet, um, but he almost never plays out. He just records in his room, plays all the instruments, uh, uploads them to, to 
various web platforms, SoundCloud, Bandcamp, there's a whole bunch of these, Reverb Nation, where you can go and, and pay for the music if you want, or you can just listen to it. It's pretty remarkable. Um, and I think that's pretty much where I, I end the book. <laughs>